You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmontrose.com. All right, so let's dive right into John chapter 1. Now, uh, just to kind of set us up for where we are at in the text, uh, let's just understand this. We're at the very beginning of the Gospel of John. So the Gospel of John is one of four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, right? And they all kind of tell different perspectives, different sides of Jesus' character, what he did, what he accomplished, what he preached, what he said, um, and, and who he was. And so um, we're here at the sort of the very beginning of one of those instances. And um, really what's taken place before we arrive at, at what we read this morning is that um, there's a man named John the Baptist, not the author of this book, just happens to have the name John, um, who essentially prepares the way of the Lord, meaning he goes uh, sort of before Jesus, he's born before Jesus, and he, he tells this people Israel of this king who is imminent, meaning he is, he is coming. It is, it's the time. The time has come. And if you have any sort of cursory familiarity with the Bible itself, you know that um, the Old Testament, right, is, is a collection of books that were written before Jesus came, and all of them, um, re- sort of uh, de- depending on how you read them, um, all of them point to the coming of this, this king, this king who would come and who would reign in glory, this king who would reign in peace, this king whose reign would not end, this king under whose reign humanity would again flourish, Right? And so this, is, this John the Baptist is, is the man who has come at this point after sort of 400 years of silence, right, from prophet to John the Baptist, and is saying, all right, the, the time's here. The, the king is here. He's here. And what we see in John 1 uh, verse 29 is, is sort of the, the climactic portion, I think, at least as far as the, the start of this book goes, right? So it tells us a little bit about this John the Baptist ministry, and then this is what happens, John the Baptist is walking along the road. He sees Jesus, and this is what he says. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And so in this moment, John the Baptist looks at Jesus, this Jesus born of Bethlehem, grown up in Nazareth, and he says, this is the one, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the one who comes after me is before me. And so at this moment, we have, right, so the the last two weeks we've seen different groups of people affirm Jesus' lordship, that he is indeed the king, right? So it was the Magi who came first. They bowed before Jesus uh, shortly after his birth. They worshipped him, right? That was an interesting story in its own right. And then last week we saw, what, John, John the Baptist saying these same things. And now what we're going to do is look at some disciples who end up following Jesus, right? Who, after a, really a, a, a pretty simple request from Jesus, follow me, end up essentially setting aside their entire life and livelihood to follow this, this man, this man Jesus. And so this is where we pick up in verse 42. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, so here's what takes place. Jesus' ministry has been affirmed by John the Baptist. 
takes upon himself that mantle. He, he affirms that, right? Yes, I, I am he of whom it has been written. And now he goes about drawing to himself people. And this man, Philip, is, is interesting in that he is from a city that is not particularly well-liked in this portion of the world. Right? So in Galilee, people from Bethsaida, not, like, not very esteemed. Right? And yet Jesus, as he often does, chooses that outcast, comes to him, says, follow me. Philip says, yes. And then here's what Philip does immediately afterwards. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And here's what I, where I want us to go with this. Right, This is a portion of narrative, and so it's not... There, there's, there's not a sense in which this portion of text is telling us, do this, be this, right? There's other portions of, of scriptures that say things like that. But I think that we can derive some very, some very practical application from this portion of narrative. And it's quite simply this, that, that when we come to follow Jesus, that we by necessity tell other people about Jesus. Like that's the first thing that Philip does. Right? Jesus comes to him, says, follow me. And Philip, the very next day, goes to, goes to Nathanael and says, look, we've, we've found him. we found the one of whom Moses and the prophets had spoken for centuries, millennia even. We have found him. He is here. And so my, my sort of whole point uh, of this entire sermon is going to be surrounded, or, or, or really just that Christians should be about telling people about Jesus. Like, so if you're a Christian in the room, like, you should be about telling people about Jesus. And that sounds simple, and yet I think many of us just now, even after me saying that, tensed up a little bit. Your eyes started twitching, and I don't know if that's just you falling asleep or if it's like you're worried about what I'm about to say next. But that's, that's essentially what we're going to talk about. And, and my hope is, look, again, that we won't uh, leave from this text feeling a, a, sort of a necess- an unnecessary weight or burden that has not been placed there by Jesus. Because I think what we'll see in this um, is a very real story in which God uses an imperfect person to do perfect things. And that's what's going to take place here next. But first, let's ask ourselves why. I mean, why would Philip do this, right? I mean, Philip is just a regular guy that, that Jesus, a man who's, who's not quite well known at this point, Comes to him, says, follow me, and Philip says, yes, and not only that, but I'm going to go essentially shout it from the mountaintops that this, that this man, this Jesus, is here. And I think we have to understand, like, again, just the, the, the prolonged wait that the people of Israel had had to meet this Messiah, this King, this Jesus. Right, so you think about the fact that, excuse me, you think about the fact that, um, that it really has literally been millennia since they had first heard that there would come this king, that there would come this person who would set all things right, who would restore good order, who would bring the, the people back to their God, who would reconcile that relationship. And then you think that, uh, again, sort of year after year of it going on and on without having seen this person, without knowing, maybe even doubting, like, is this is this even true? Are these prophecies true? Is what has been promised us real or have we set our hope on false ground? And the moment comes. 
The moment comes where Jesus is finally here. He's here, um, and regardless of whether their understanding of what Jesus came to accomplish was correct, the fact of the matter is that they knew that this was that Messiah, that this was that, that son of David who would be born in Bethlehem, whose reign would see no end. And so here's the thing. I mean, Philip, essentially what drives him to this moment, this moment of sort of evangelism, this moment of sharing Jesus with his friend Nathaniel, is that he's, he's enraptured, he's captured with the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. And so here's the thing, if you're, that statement that I made just a minute ago, that Christians should be about telling people about Jesus, if that sounds, if that sounds difficult for you, like maybe, maybe, just maybe, it's because we don't really believe that the good news is good news. Because typically, when we get good news, we share good news. And I've, no, I've, I've sort of experienced this a lot, especially recently, um, because my wife is with child. Um, and uh, and we've, we've gotten nothing but good news thus far. Like, so every time we go in, it's like, baby's healthy, mom's healthy, everything's great. And I just want to, like, I want to run in circles and yell, my baby's, like, fine, you know? Because, you, look, it doesn't matter how many advancements we make in medicine, like, there's still no way to, to ensure the health of a child in the womb. That's, that's just interesting to me anyway with, with, with all the trust that we put in medicine and science. But anyway, um, <clears throat> I'll get off that soapbox. Um, but the reason, the reason that Philip does this is because he believes that the good news is good news and that it's true. And so look, Christian, if, if you and I really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the king, that he is the one who has come to restore right order between God and his people, if he is the one who has come to give salvation to the lost, if he is the one who takes people from darkness, out of darkness, into light, who makes people that were dead now alive, why would we not, why would we not want to share that? Like if we've been, like Ephesians 2 says, if we were once children of darkness, like in very opposition to God, but now God being rich in mercy has made us alive in Christ, like that's the best news that you're going to get while, while you're on this planet. It just is. And so that's, I mean, that, that's the only thing that can drive and can motivate us into this, this sharing Jesus. And if it's anything else, honestly, like um, it, it's probably not going to be fruitful. But, let me say this, now that we know the why, I think that for many of us, this idea of evangelism or this idea of sharing Jesus, when we even begin to think about it, we immediately start counting up the reasons why we can't. Right? We begin to think of um, maybe the fact that we're incapable or maybe the fact that we feel ill-equipped. Or maybe we feel like we don't have enough knowledge to be able to do so. Those what-ifs begin to pile up in our mind when we think about those people that we would share Jesus with. Well, what if this happens? Or what if I don't have the right answer? Or what if I mess it up? Or what, right? I don't, I don't know if this is true for you, but it's definitely true for me. But my hope and my belief this morning is that this account of what takes place between Philip and Nathaniel will set those fears at ease. Because, because the, the appeal that Philip gives to Nathaniel is nothing short of incompetent. 
And this is, this is what takes place. Philip found, found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, at first glance, like that probably looks pretty solid, right? Like, I mean, he just met Jesus yesterday, so this is pretty good, you know? Like, Moses, the prophets, Jesus, son of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And yet, here's the thing. If we, if we really wanted to key in on Philip's theology here, we would find three gross errors. And I'm, I just want to point them out to us so that we see, um, yeah, so that we see what's taking place here. First thing that Philip says, he says, we have found him. That's wrong. He didn't, he, <laughs> Philip didn't find Jesus. Jesus found Philip, right? I mean, that's what it says, literally the verse before that. It says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, he found Philip, right? And if you, and if you happen to be of sort of the, the, uh, the theological heritage that um, Sojourn would align herself with, like the Reformed uh, doctrine, then you know, that, you know that that's particularly funny, um, but you're not laughing, which is fine. Um, but like that Jesus finds us, like that we're hopeless, that we're helpless, that Jesus is the one who inserts himself into human history and then inserts himself into our life by the power of the Spirit, wakes our dead hearts up, makes us alive to the truth about Jesus. The, what used to be the foolishness of God now becomes the wisdom of God to us. Right? So that's the first statement that's off in Philip's appeal to Nathaniel here. Second thing he says is that he calls Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Here's the thing, Jesus wasn't born in Nazareth. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And, and so some of you may say, well, yeah, but he lived in Nazareth. But here's the thing, Philip is addressing him by a city of birth. And he gets it wrong. Right? I mean, and in fact, if you know the significance of Bethlehem, this becomes an even, an even graver error than you would think it to be. Right? Because all of the prophets, all of what Moses says, tells us that this king, this coming king, would be born in Bethlehem. Like that's the whole, that's what sort of all, that's one of the major signs of this king actually being here. And Philip blows it. Alright, the next thing that Philip messes up, he says, the son of Joseph. Well, no, he's not. He's not the son of Joseph because he's the son of God. He was conceived of a virgin Mary. Right? So his, his, his theology is all off. Like if this guy were up here preaching this to you, you would probably be like, yeah, we're just not going to listen to this guy. Because we've sort of crossed all our theological T's, dotted all of our theological I's. So the question I think we ask now, right? Jesus says to Philip, follow me. Philip goes to Nathaniel, gives him a sort of decent appeal to come and see this Jesus. Is it effective? Let's keep reading. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Here's where you see that Bethsaida-Nazareth rivalry. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Dallas? Um, sorry. Had to do it. Um, Philip... <laughs> I'll give you a minute to recoup there. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So, Nathaniel's response to this great gospel appeal from Philip is, really? Nazareth? 
that's all you've got for me, Philip? Like, I don't, I don't for a second buy this. Right? This is that horrifying moment that, that probably all of us have nightmares about when we think about sharing uh, Jesus with someone. Well, what if they just outright reject it? You know? What if they, what if they answer like, really? 33-year-old Jewish carpenter dies on a Roman cross and you're telling me that's effective for my salvation before a holy God that I don't even believe in? That's, that's essentially the response here. It's one of those moments where you're like, man, I... I want to take a long walk off a short pier before this conversation gets any worse. Like I disappear into the ground, tele- beam me up, Scotty, whatever it is that has to happen, get me out of this situation. Now, surely, right? Surely Philip has some miraculous defense for his faith, right? A well-articulated presupposition presuppositional apologetics-based, theology-wielding, culturally adept, sociologically apropos rebuttal to this skeptic. What does he say? Philip said, come and see. That's it. That's all he's got. I mean, Nathaniel's like, really? Really? And he's like, come and see. Yeah, come and see. That's all he's got. Like, he, he's like, I exhausted everything on the first round. I've got, I got nothing left for you. Just come. Come and see. That's, that's what happens. That's what takes place, right? So this is, this is almost like that horrifying moment when you're watching someone else tell someone about Jesus and you want to die for them or, or with them, you know? You want to just like, can we, this, like, you know, if you had like the click remote where you could, you know, go back 30 seconds or whatever and start over, that, that's this moment. Here's what happens next. Verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? So here's what takes place, right? So um, Nathanael decides for whatever reason, maybe he's just bored or I, I don't know, maybe he's curious, right? But for whatever reason, he decides to come with Philip to meet Jesus. And Jesus, seeing him coming, says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael's kind of like, how do, you, how do you know me? Right? This is one of the, you know, it's almost kind of a rude response. It's like, hey, man, like, how do you know my business already? This is weird. And so you've got kind of this, this rude response, and yet Jesus doesn't write him off. Jesus doesn't say, all right, well, forget you then. I'll find somebody else. No, he... He entreats Nathanael, and this is what he says. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And here's here's the watershed moment. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Like, what just happened? Right? Because this entire story, Nathaniel's like, nah, dude, I'm not, I'm not in. I'm not in. I'm not in. And then he meets Jesus and he's like, dude, like, I don't know you. How do you know me? What, what is happening here? And then Jesus, with his, with his omniscience, with his, with his omnipresence, says, look, I've, I've seen you. I know you. An Israelite in whom there is no deceit. I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel goes, his, I mean, his eyes, his heart, everything blows up, not in reality, but, um, but Jesus, seriously, Jesus just 
breaks down the door into his heart and, and Nathaniel sees Jesus for who he is. And he says, Rabbi, which, so he went from like utterly disrespectful to now incredibly respectful. He was like, hey, you don't know me. Oh, Rabbi, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, here's the thing about Nathaniel's proclamation. It's actually probably more theologically astute than Philip's. Like, he just became a believer, and he's already kind of got a leg up on Philip. And so here's the thing. This is, this is an astonishing moment for several reasons. And I think there's, there's really two kinds of people that we see here. Right? We, see, we see a follower of Jesus being faithful to what Jesus has called him to do, to call people to follow him. And then we see a skeptic who's willing in that moment to, to doubt his doubts, even if just for a moment. And so I want to I talk to, to both of those groups of people this morning. I think, number one, if you're a skeptic, if you're in Nathaniel's seat this morning, where you're like, dude, I don't know about all this. You'll, you'll notice how Jesus treats the skeptic. And I think this is, it, it's, it's kind of shameful. It's kind of shameful that the church of Jesus is known for treating skeptics with a lot more disdain than Jesus is known for treating skeptics. But Jesus invites you in. He says, look, I'm, I'm, I'm here. You can ask me your questions, Right? You can make those things known. There's nothing off, off limits, out of bounds for us because I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so if you're a skeptic this morning, man, like I would invite you to ask the tough questions. I would invite you to be among the people of God and raise the sincere doubts that you have and we will pray and, and believe that he will reveal himself to you just as he did to Nathaniel here. That's ultimately why we do what we do, right? Like if you're, if you're a skeptic in the room, just know, like seriously, just know that we really believe all this to be true. And as crazy as that sounds to you, we believe it to be true. And so that means, that means that we're going to act as if it is, which means we're going to like tell you about it. I mean, could you... If, if you had something that you were utterly convinced about, that you thought was utterly good news, and that you thought was utterly available to anyone who would take part in it, would you not, would you not share that with people that you loved and cared for? That's what's taking place when we, when we share Jesus with you. It's not at all in any way to get you to conform to our moral standard or so that we can have more votes that lean Republican. It has nothing to do with that. And everything to do with the fact that we really believe that Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And at the, at the end of history, he will reign and rule over all things, all tongues, all tribes, all peoples, all nations. And we want you to join us in that place. That's what's taking place, honestly. And so we love you. We want to serve you. We want to care for you. And that is not contingent upon whether you say something that we think you should say or or. or that you are something that we think you should be. Jesus accepts people as they are. He invites their doubts and he responds to them overwhelmingly with his grace and his kingship. Now, for those of us who are Christians in the room, again, I, 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 know, I, I know because I feel this tension. But we, 
look, we must be, we must be bold enough to share this good news. If Jesus is the king and the king really is here and if the king really is coming again to establish his kingdom forever, then we should share that. But here's the thing. I think oftentimes we get in our own way and we think, I don't know enough. I'm not theologically robust enough. I don't have a good grasp of apologetics. I don't on and on and on. And yet, look, if, if Jesus can use the flawed testimony of Philip to bring a skeptic of skeptics to, to faith in Christ, he can use your bad presentation. He can use your fumbled words. He can use your weak prayers. He can use all of that for the sake of his name. Why? Because he said he would do it. And so what really what's taking place when we have loved ones, people who we really and truly care for, that we are not willing to share the gospel with, really what we're saying is that I'm more concerned with how I'm perceived than whether or not this person will experience fullness of life underneath Jesus' reign and rule. That's what we're saying. And that's not true. But so here's the thing, I really do hope, I really do hope that as we look at really kind of how pitiful Philip's, Philip's appeal is to Nathaniel, that the Lord can and does use those things for his glory. And so as we, as we sort of close out this morning, um, I want us to read the next couple of verses because I think that that sort of just, it rounds it off really perfectly for us. It says this. I'm going to take sort of half of verse 49. This is uh, Jesus' response to Nathanael. He says, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And here's what Jesus is saying. is that he's, he's, Look, I've, I've made the way. Like, I... I climbed down from heaven to, to be with you and I will take you up there with me. Right? As we, as we have been buried with Christ, so we are also resurrected with Christ. And this, these two words, which you'll see really all throughout the book of John, truly, truly, that could be, that could be translated also as the word amen. Which that's that weird word that we say at the end of our prayers that we're not 100% sure what it means. But, but amen essentially is let it be so, may it be so, right? So we say all these prayers, things that we want Jesus to do, things that we, that we want to come to pass, and then at the end of our prayers we say, let it be so, Lord Jesus, let it be so. But Jesus here says it beforehand, and the reason that he says it beforehand is because he knows that whatever comes after that, he has both the power and the will and ability to affect that, to actually see it happen, that what he says, that what he decrees comes to pass, right? And so if Jesus, if Jesus has promised that his people will see greater things than this, if Jesus has promised that through his people, his name will be known, if Jesus has promised that he came with the ministry of reconciliation and that we have now been 
passed on that same ministry, will he not also fulfill that which he has said? So here's the thing. Sojourn Montrose, young church, you know, a little over a year old, a fairly, a fairly younger crowd, a lot, of, a lot of folks who are still probably working out what it really means to follow Jesus. But here's the thing. Jesus does not wait. Jesus does not wait until you've got yourself together to start reaching people through you. He uses even bad theology, that thing that we hold so high, to bring people to see the real Jesus. Because even though Philip got it wrong, and even though Philip messed it up, he still brought Nathaniel to see the real Jesus, the Jesus of the gospel, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who is here, who is in our midst, whose presence has been made known, who has been manifest as the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, him of whom it will be said, worthy, 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 or holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Let's pray.